0: Next, the golden days of radio. This is Frank Brzee inviting you to join me for the golden days of radio. Great moments from radio programs of the past featuring the world's most famous personalities. On this edition, we are continuing our salute to American newsman Walter Winchell. Winchell made news on the night of August 24th, 1939, when Prohibition gangster Lewis Buckhalter, Lepke, turned himself in. Mr. Winchell tells the story this way. Public enemy number one was Lewis Buckhalter. B-U-C-H-A-L-T-E-R. The underworld call him the Lepke. Lep, for Lepke, the family name for Louie. Lepke Buckhorter had been a fugitive from justice for two years. The federal government had indicted him for narcotics and being on the lam. He had jumped bail of $25,000. Lepke was also wanted by the state of New York for murder. District Attorney Thomas E. Dewey wanted him for 80 murders. All blamed on Murder Incorporated, of which Mr. Lepke was Mr. President. The year was 1939. Hot, humid August 1939. I was rushing through a piece of cheesecake and coffee in Lindy's restaurant before covering a new play two blocks away at the Ambassador Theater on West 49th Street, New York City. On the sidewalk at 51 and Broadway, out front of Lindy's, a man sidled up to me. I had seen this man around the big street for a long, long time. But he was not a gangster. He was on the fringe of the underworld. Walter, he said, can I talk to you? Well, I told him I'm rushing to the theater to cover a new show. He said, "Uh, you know... I hear things too. I said, You do? What are you trying to tell me? Lepke, he whispered. You mean public enemy number one. Walter, he said, I don't know where he is, but I hear that he might come in. If they can find someone they can trust. I fell into his trap. Would they trust me? I asked him. Are you serious? He replied. Are you? I said. Look, Walter, nobody is going to get shot. No G man will be in danger. If a stranger today walked up to Lepke and asked him for a match, he'd kill him. Okay, what do you want me to do? I'll pass the word along, the man said. You'll get a call. The very next night, about 1.30 a.m., I was in the store club. One of the captains came over to me and said, you'll want it on the phone. Okay, I told him, bring me your phone. It's in the booth in the lobby, he told me. Oh, I said, it can't be anybody who knows me... Or they'd call me through the switchboard. I took the call anyway. A voice said, you had a talk last night in front of Lindy's. Oh, hello, hello, I said excitedly. Yes. This is not the same fellow, said the voice. Can we make a meet? Meet is underworld slang for a meeting, a conference. Where? When, I asked. Now, he said, use your car with the four lamps. The four lamps? I don't get it. You've got a couple of fog lights, haven't you? Oh, that car's in the country, I told him. My wife has it in Westchester. We'll go and get it, he said. It's 1.30 in the morning, I told him. It will take me at least forty minutes to get that car. And then getting impatient, he said, We'll go get it. It's the one we know. Walter, why don't you get the car with the four lamps? Then what do I do? He said, Did you ever drive through the Holland Tunnel to Atlantic City or Philadelphia? Yes, I said. Well, all right. So make like you're going to the Holland Tunnel. Take the tunnel and turn left at the end. When you're at the second red light, make a right. You'll see a lot of nothing. Swamps. Just keep cruising. We'll pick you up. I borrowed the store club owner's car and got to my home in Westchester about an hour later. I woke up Mrs. Winchell and told her I had to run an errand for the mob. Oh, my wife sighed. Why do you get yourself involved with such people? Honey, I told her, I don't get myself involved. They get involved with me. Now, please don't make a thing of this. Just don't worry. When I got to the scene, I turned on all four lamps. I must have cruised for about 10 or 15 minutes, but it seemed like 10 or 15 hours to me. When nobody showed up, I got a little jittery because this was the scene of the New Jersey German-American Bund headquarters. And I had been doing a job on these Hitler stooges over here. And so I left and went home wondering if I had made the wrong turn. And so the next night at a quarter to two in the morning, I got another call in the same phone booth. It was still another voice. For three and a half weeks, it was always a different voice. It was also always a different face. I had never seen any of those faces before or since. What happened, I told him. I was there. To which he replied, we saw you. What do you mean you saw me? We saw you. Later, I figured they were testing me to see if I was being tailed. Okay, I told him. What do I do now? Have you got the car with the four lamps? Yes. Then he told me the location of the next meet. It was Jersey again. This time over the George Washington Bridge. A certain bar and grill on the Jersey side. A fellow sat next to me at the bar in order to drink. He finally told me to follow him. He took me in his car to a very nice neighborhood. One of the residential streets. A lot of trees. And we just parked. Ask your friend, the G-man, if he's interested in Lepke coming in. Oh, he's interested, I said. I can tell you, he's very interested. Just ask him. But I'm telling you, Mr. Hoover is very interested. Why don't you ask him? (laughs) This was on a Saturday night. He told me to put what Mr. Hoover said on my Sunday night broadcast the very next night at nine o'clock. Mr. Hoover cooperated. He told me to make the following statement: quotes: "Attention public enemy number one: Lepke Buckhalter. I am authorized by John Edgar Hoover, the director of the Federal Bureau of Investigation, to guarantee you safe delivery to the FBI." The number one G-man and his chief aide sat in the studio as I made that broadcast. We sat around for another hour waiting for a call which did not come. I found out later that the mob was trying to sell Lepke a bill of goods, and that they had told him to listen to what I said to convince him. The reason that they wanted him to surrender to the FBI was to save him from the electric chair at Sing Sing. The G-men, the Treasury agents, and the New York Police Department were making the Lepke gang very unhappy. The mob couldn't even make a $2 bet at the tracks without being stopped by a federal man who asked many questions. Lepke and his assassins also owned several respectable enterprises. They owned a chain of clothing factories along the eastern seaboard, grocery store chains, nightclubs, restaurants, etc. In Baltimore, where their number one factory was located, the G-men would stop people in the corridors and challenge, What are you doing here? I'm a respectable businessman, the astonished visitor would say. I'm a buyer. I'm going up to the Raleigh Clothing Company. Do you know you're doing business with murderers? This company is owned by Murder Incorporated of Brooklyn, New York. As a result of all this pressure, the Lepke-owned Raleigh Clothing Company business took a big dive. So now I get my third call. This time, I was to meet them in Lower Connecticut. The gang never gave me more than one question at a time to relay to Mr. Hoover. This time, the one message was... Ask Mr. Hoover, what does he think the probable sentence will be? I woke Mr. Hoover up at 5.45 that morning and relayed it. Look, Walter, said Mr. Hoover, I'm just a policeman with a badge. But knowing the law and what they want him for, I would guess about 12 to 15 years. There never was any deal, by the way, between the FBI and Murder Incorporated. Just the pledge to me that Lepke would be guaranteed safe delivery to the FBI. And so the mob persuaded Lepke to surrender. They told Lepke he would get a short prison bit. It developed that they told Lepke a lie. They told him that Mr. Hoover had told me to tell them that Lepke would get only ten years and would get out in six for good behavior. That was not true. Incidentally, another reason the mob wanted Lepke to come in was that they were in danger of arrest for harboring Lepke. And so, Lepke, public enemy number one, became his own mob's number one expendable. (laughs) And now I want to tell you about the actual surrender, the actual delivery of public enemy number one, Lepke. The man wanted by the state of New York for 80 murders attributed to his gang and by the FBI for narcotics and for being a fugitive from justice. The time must have been around 8.30 p.m. I went as directed to a corner in Yonkers, New York. I stopped the car. The window was down. A car very close came alongside. While waiting for the light to change, I heard a voice softly say, That's him. We are now at 23rd Street on 8th Avenue. And the man said, There's a drugstore on the northwest corner of 19th and 8th Avenue. There are three phone booths in there, he said. Go in there, he said, and phone your friend Hoover at the Hotel Waldorf Astoria. They knew everything. It is now about 925, and we reach 19th Street and 8th Avenue. I pulled the car to the curb. I said, It's 930. I don't know that he's there. He might be at Radio City Music Hall looking at a picture. He goes there a lot when in New York to see the movies. Or he might be in Lindy's or at the store club or taking a walk around Midtown. It's too early for him to go to bed. The man said, Walter, why don't you call him at the Waldorf? And when you get him, tell him to meet you alone. Tell Mr. Hoover to be there alone between 10 and 10.20 tonight at the corner of 28th Street and 5th Avenue. I don't know why I did this, but I took the key of the car with me. I don't know why I did it. I guess it was habit. I had forgotten I had a companion. So I had the key in my hand. I went into the drugstore, and the booths, three phone booths, are all occupied. One with a drunk, laughing, telling jokes to somebody. There was a lady in another booth, and a young girl in another. They were all very busy. Now, don't forget that I had been talking Lepke on the air. I also had it in the paper, so now I'm afraid that people seeing me at this strange place off my Broadway beat, in a strange area of New York, for me to go in to make a phone call, somebody might call the opposition newspapers or something and steal my little story. Now, with all phone booths occupied, I don't want to look like I'm nervous or anything, which I was. I was like a cub reporter with a brand new scoop. I turned to the soda counter, that was pretty occupied... And so, very softly, I said, small Coke, please. Small Coke. A kid about 17 or 18 years old was behind the counter. He started to put the Coke syrup in. This kid with the dirty chocolate on his white uniform. As he started to put the syrup in, he looked at me. He looked at me, and I started to get nervous. I thought, well, he's recognized me. I turned my eyes away from him. Then he studied me and said, ain't you somebody, mister? Ain't you somebody? I said, no, 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 no. With that, the lady came out of the booth and I raced into it. Now it's about 9.45. I called the Hotel Waldorf where the G-Men were waiting for calls from me. I said, John, this is the champ bull thrower. He said, now, none of that stuff. I said, I've been instructed by my friends, John. I was instructed, John, to tell you to be alone. Tonight, I've been instructed by my friends in the underworld, Murder Incorporated, to tell you to be alone between 10.10 and 10.20 tonight at the corner of 28th Street and 5th Avenue the southeast corner, John, and be alone. Then I left the drugstore. I had the key to the car and I felt no control over my right hand. It shook like a leaf. I got behind the wheel and I went to put the key in the lock and I just shook, like the palsy. I nervously said, ha look at me with the jitters. And this guy in the other seat said, what's the matter, you nervous kid? I said, well, look. He said, get over here. He got out of the right side of the car, walked around the front, took the keys out of my hand, started the ignition, and away we drove. I just sat there with the joy of knowing the actual delivery of Murderer number 1 was going to take place in a few minutes. We drive down to the battery and pause and look at the beautiful lady in the harbor with the torch in her right hand, the Statue of Liberty. We sat there for a moment. Then he turned around and returned uptown. Through the canyons of Lower Manhattan, the lights were on in the buildings, the charwomen working. Don't forget, it is Sunday night Along the waterfront, this is a very eerie place on a Sunday night in the pitch black dark. You hear the tugboats, the foghorns, a very weird sound. The only other sounds that you hear on a Sunday night in New York are the clicks of the lights, the traffic lights on the street corners. We are cruising around, snaking in and out of side streets, into Chinatown, Mott Street, Mulberry Street, Hester Street, Delancey Street, and then back up one of the avenues, one of the arteries leading to 14th Street, then over to the East River, then back to the North River, the Hudson River. The driver was killing time. Finally, at around 10:12, he turned from the North River then east on 23rd Street. Here is the surrender picture. It's Sunday night, Madison Square Park, between 23rd and 24th Streets. There are no stores on this entire block. The lamppost, where we stopped on the corner, happened to be out, making it darker. There were no lights between 23rd and 24th. Black as ink. Now, my driver backs out of the car. As he backs out, he hands me something out of his pocket. But before pressing it into my hand, he put it to his lips and kissed it. And he said, when you see the Lep, give this to him. I didn't look at it, but I felt it. A religious medal. So this gangster hands me a religious emblem. How do you like that? I put it in my pocket. Now he's backed out. I look over his shoulder, and the only two people I saw were two heavy-set men in shirt sleeves, straw hats on their heads, sitting on a park bench, talking on this very hot night in August 1939. Now, I don't know why I did this. I don't know why. But in my extreme nervousness, I reached down and turned on my police box. As I'm reaching to turn on the box, A voice says alongside of me, Thank you, Walter. Thank you, Walter. It was Lepke. I said, Get in. Get in on the other side. He was almost getting in where I sat. He was about to sit alongside of me when I pulled at the seat in front and said, No, 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 no. Get in the back. Get in the back. So Lepke got in the back seat of the car. I'd never seen him before in my life. He had a Groucho Marx mustache. I thought it was a phony because he kept using his index finger on the right hand, drying the mustache. He was sweating freely. He had long sideburns. He wore a pair of glasses. His hat was pulled down very close to his ears. He looked like a comedian. It developed later that he had grown the mustache for part of his disguise. Then I did four or five miles an hour for fear that somebody, some cop, would come along and give me a ticket or recognize me and steal him from me. So now I have to make a left turn at 27th and Madison. As I approach 27th, out comes a precinct prowl car. Oh, brother, I'm going to lose him. Uh, this is what I'm thinking. But they didn't even stop for the light. They just proceeded west on 27th. As I approached 27th and 5th, I looked up and I could see a block away the tail of Mr. Hoover's car. J42. That's the license tag of Mr. Hoover's automobile. Now, to show you what a state my nerves were in, I felt the bones absolutely jump through my skin when there was a thunderous bolt of lightning, I thought. What was that? Lepke looked at me and said, I threw my glasses away on the sidewalk. It sounded like a cannon shot to me. I was ready to explode. At any rate, I see Mr. Hoover, and I know now. It is only a matter of seconds. Now the lights change. I turn the corner. I pull my car around and made a big circle right behind his car with my car tail sticking out in the Fifth Avenue. My lights are on. My police calls are on. The motor is running. I jumped out of the left side, ran around to the right side, opened the door, and taking Lepke by the wrist like a little boy, I said, come on, Lepke. With that, I opened the door of Mr. Hoover's car. As I opened the door of Mr. Hoover's car, I said, Lepke, this is Mr. Hoover. Mr. Hoover, this is Lepke. Mr. Hoover ordered him, get in the car. So we got in the car, and I sat on the jump seat. Mr. Hoover said to his driver, Foley Square... That's where the federal building is, the United States Courthouse. Then Mr. Hoover couldn't resist saying, where are all your high and mighty and influential friends now, Mr. Buckhalter? Lepke, looking at the floor of the car, said, I'm beginning to wonder. Now we pass 14th, going south. We are stopped by a red light at 13th when John Edgar said to me, get out of the car. I said, oh, John, what's this one now? He said, what do you want to do, make an entrance with me and this man into the courthouse with the district reporters and the AP and the UP and where your opposition will see us come in and steal your scoop? You fool, get out of this car. And so I got out. I ran back to 14th Street looking for a store on a Sunday night. There were no stores open, but there was a bar and grill open. I went in and finally got the mirror city desk. Excitedly, I said, this is Walla Winchell, public enemy number one Lepke, just surrendered to the FBI. My editor said, oh, how do you know? How do I know? I just turned him over. He said, oh, you and your silly scoops, Hitler just invaded Danzig. And my scoop died. I was scooped by the opposition. The New York Daily News and the Associated Press had beaten the mirror by 11 minutes. okay, Let's get back to the record. The day after Lepke was sentenced to 14 years, his lawyer called me. This man's name was Freddie Kaplan. He was one of Lepke's better lawyers. Mr. Kaplan phoned me at the New York Mirror, where I was doing my column. This was about four in the morning. Mr. Kaplan said, Lepke wants to see you in a cell at the Federal Detention Prison downtown. You have to go to see the judge that sentenced him to get permission. The next morning, I saw Judge Knox. The judge gave me permission. It was at the Federal Detention Prison in Lower Manhattan that I was ushered into a cell where they brought Lepke. Just for this meeting, I will never forget that scene. Alongside of Lepke was his wife, Betty, and on the other side was Mr. Kaplan, his lawyer. In between us, separating me from them, was a very old-fashioned, dilapidated kitchen table. Lepke got right to the point. Walter, I will ask you one thing. Did you ever tell any of my friends... That if I came into you for the FBI, that the most I would get would be ten years, and that with being a good boy, I would get out in six? I looked at Lepke, and I had a feeling that there was a bug in the room. You know, a microphone, or a dictaphone, or something. So I raised my voice. Lepke, I said, my name is Walter Winchell of the New York Mirror, and I never told that to anybody. In that one second, I saw the eyes of a killer. Lepke hit that table with such a wallop in direct center, with such a punch with his fist, he banged it right in two and I jumped. Not in tight, I was just startled. He said, that's just what I thought. And then for the first time, he seemed to realize that his own friends had double-crossed him. Of course, you say... Why did he go to the electric chair, which is what he was trying to avoid? Well, this is what I'm going to tell you now. I was at Miami Beach doing my work from there. I was in the barbershop of the Roney Plaza late one afternoon. The Miami Daily News came out with the front page of last-minute flashes from Pittsburgh, Cleveland, Los Angeles, New York, the Bronx, and so on. There was a flash from Washington that public enemy number one, Lewis, Lepke, Buckhalter, wanted by the state of New York for murder, had been turned over to New York to Dewey by the federal government. I got a sick feeling across my middle. It was fright. Not that the mob itself would think I double-crossed anybody, but that some underworld, underling, who was devoted to Lepke might think that I double-crossed him and might do something about it. So I got right to a telephone. I called Mr. Hoover in Washington, and I said, oh, John, you'll never get anybody to ever come in again. Never. This is what they call a double-cross. John Edgar said, wait a minute, don't get so excited. Why don't you call up your friend, the Attorney General of the United States, Frank Murphy, and ask him... I knew Mr. Murphy, but I just couldn't call because I was really getting angry now. So I had my lawyer, who was a very good friend of Mr. Murphy, the Attorney General of the United States. He reported back to me and said, Walter, don't get nervous. Lepke is being turned over to the state of New York for trial, not for sentence. And Lepke was turned over. He was tried. And so Louis Lepke Buckhalter, President of Murder Incorporated... Paid with his life in the electric chair at Sing Sing, Ossining, New York, at 11.16 p.m. on March 4th, 1944. up this edition of the golden days of radio next week we will continue our salute to walter winchell this is frank brisee inviting you to join me on this the american forces radio and television service